IBN is proud to bring you the following podcast. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm T.J. O'Hara, the Principal Political Analyst for IBN, the Independent Voter News. Our goal on Deconstructed is to break down important political issues with outstanding guests, so you can develop your own, more informed opinion. My guest today is Lawrence Kotlikoff, a professor of economics at Boston University. He is also a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Science, a fellow of the Econometric Society, research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, president of Economic Security Planning Incorporated, and director of the Fiscal Analysis Center. Mr. Kotlikoff writes recurring columns for Forbes and The Hill. He has hundreds of scholarly articles published in a myriad of journals and periodicals, and he's authored or co-authored at least 18 books that come to mind. Mr. Kotlikoff is here to discuss his take on the economy and a variety of issues that are affecting it. Welcome to Deconstructed, Larry. Uh, great to be with you, TJ. Thanks for having me. Larry, I have a great deal of respect for your opinion and always look forward to reading your most recent publications. So with that said, let's jump into a discussion about the United States economy. Obviously, it's been skewed by the pandemic, but in your opinion, how is it doing pre-March of last year and how is it doing post-March of this year? Well, obviously, we're coming out of this terrible time and deep recession. So it looks like the recovery's, you know, coming along well and that uh, we should be able to get back on track now. There's a lot of hiccups right now with prices going out the roof on lots of items. The big question is whether that's a temporary phenomenon or whether that's permanent. And it can become permanent even if it's temporary because it can get into people's heads that prices are going up and that changes their expectations. And for companies, as you mentioned, I have a small company that does personal financial planning software. And we just sat down and decided we hadn't raised our prices for our software. It's very inexpensive to begin with, but we hadn't raised prices for five years. And we just realized that everybody else is raising prices. This is the time to raise them so we won't upset our customers. They'll understand the setting which we're raising prices because the costs are going up. So anyway, so that's my concern that inflation could take off on its own without any real fundamental cause because it gets into people's heads that inflation is happening. Larry, what did the Trump administration get right and what did it get wrong in your opinion? Well, I think what it got right was trying to reduce our effective marginal tax on investing in the U.S. We had at the outset of the Trump administration, by some measures, not all measures, but according to some economists who look at this carefully, and there are disagreements here about how to measure this stuff, but there were indications that we were pretty far out of line compared to other countries, including our European competitors in Japan and certainly China, in terms of the effective marginal tax for investing in the U.S., the corporate marginal tax. So the Trump administration engaged in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. The main thing that that did, there was some decline in the average tax rates that were geared towards more red states over blue states, but basically everybody got a 1% to a 2% lifetime tax cut. They were higher tax cuts for people in real estate. No surprise given Trump's background, or maybe that is a surprise that kind of corruption would take place. I think it was corrupt the way that went down. But anyway, the, the main thing from the economics perspective was not really the personal side of the law, but really lowering the effective tax rate from about a 35% marginal effective tax rate to about a 21% rate to make the U.S. a more competitive place to invest. Now, is that really affecting investment? 
I think uh, time will tell. There was a lot going on in that administration that they engaged in that pushed things in the opposite direction, including putting on tariffs and engaging in a larger deficit finance, you know, on top of big deficit finance. Of course, we have more of it going on now. So the administration generated a lot of uncertainty about the course of policy into the future. And that is uncertainty about future tax hikes, including corporate tax hikes. And now we see there are Democrats wanting to raise the corporate tax rate. So it's very complicated to think about, you know, if you're seeing a lowering in the corporate tax a couple of years ago, and then you're saying, well, will Trump really last? Is this really a stable place to invest? If I put my invest in this company, country, will foreigners put on tariffs because the products are coming from the U.S.? And then will the Democrats reverse what they was just done because this was not done by consensus? So all that makes it difficult to know. But in general, we wanted to, we should have a competitive marginal effective tax rate. And I think that's a plus. And on some measures, it has increased investment in the country uh, over what would otherwise have been the case. And Larry, let's look at the Biden administration. What has it done right and what has it done wrong, in your opinion? Well, I think it's certainly uh, calmed the country down. We have a president who's not shooting off the hip text messages at 3 a.m. in the morning with crazy, you know, just sounding crazy left, right, and center and crazy, and also crazy, crazy in terms of not knowing what he's talking about, no matter what it is, including economic policy. So you have somebody who's actually an adult who knows how to run a country in a calm, deliberate manner. And you saw that with the rollout since he arrived, since Biden arrived in terms of the vaccine. We now have the pandemic basically at bay and the economy is coming back to life. That's a huge thing because President Biden is correct that we were never going to get the economy going again without getting people vaccinated. And, you know, the Trump administration kind of said, well, you know, we can just go back to not wearing masks and didn't really push on the vaccination, even though they helped create the vaccines. That was a huge, huge thing uh, that they did. That's a huge accomplishment. I want to congratulate the Trump administration, the former president, on getting the vaccines uh, underway. But then it became a big political football and to the point where, you know, Republican senators won't admit whether or not they've been vaccinated. I mean, geez, how stupid is that? You know, maybe they didn't get polio vaccines. Do they, are they also not getting vaccinated for anything? Shingles, polio, diphtheria, uh, tetanus. I mean, this is really first order stupid. But anyway, not to digress too much, we have a stable president. We have a president who's going about normalizing international trade relations, lowering some of these ridiculous tariffs that were put into place, but also being tough with China where it's appropriate and with other entities like Russia not coddling up to Putin when he's potentially at the same time. You know, we don't know where these attacks are coming, this ransomware, but the press is saying it's coming from Russia. And we need somebody to let President Putin know that this has to stop and he needs to take action internally if it is coming from Russia. So I think we have a growing up in the White House and that reduces uncertainty. And he's engaged in a lot of deficit finance, which I think is dangerous because it's on top of all the deficit finance that the Republicans have engaged in under GW and, and then Trump. 
it's as if we can just leave infinite numbers of bills to our kids and nobody's going to, and then they're going to be able to pay them. Well, there's fewer kids coming along. They're less well-educated and the bills are going sky high. And most of the debts are off the books, like for social security, which is slated to go under in terms of cash flow in a, I think 2031, 2034 in that area. They're going to have to either cut benefits by about a quarter or raise taxes dramatically. So we need to have Biden act a little more responsibly, fiscally speaking. And then there's also inflation. And the Fed is, I think, acting somewhat irresponsibly by suggesting that they're going to keep interest rates low for as long as possible. Well, for forever, as long as Jerome Powell can see out to the distant future. And that means printing a lot of money. Every time the government borrows money to keep interest rates from rising, they buy out the, you know, the, the treasury prints the bonds, hands the bonds to the public in, in exchange for money. And then the government uses the money to do whatever. And then the bonds are sitting there in the public's hand. And then the treasury, the Fed prints money and buys up the bonds. So we now have more money out there chasing the same amount of goods. So we're, that spells inflation. So the Fed has laid the groundwork since 2008, really for a six-fold, if not a 12-fold increase in the price level. As I speak, even without any additional money creation, if you just look at all the money that's been printed. So that's the problem. We have a risk of inflation, indeed, something akin to hyperinflation for our country in the short to medium term, I think. And we have enormous bills that we're not living up to and more spending being proposed without any idea that there's a fiscal budget here. Well, Larry, we're going to take a quick break and talk more about the United States economic programs and positioning when we come back. Looking for an insider's perspective? Join IVN's principal political analyst, Dr. T.J. O'Hara, as he deconstructs America's most pressing issues with notable guests from across the political spectrum. Subscribe to Deconstructed for fresh perspectives and no partisan spin. Welcome back. My guest today is Larry Kotlikoff, professor of economics at Boston University and one of our nation's most prolific authors of economic analysis. Larry, let's talk about some of the more critical economic issues that confront our country today, starting with the elephant in the room, the recovery from the pandemic. What are your thoughts on stimulus? Let's start with that one. Well, I think that the people that have lost their jobs certainly needed help and we and certainly that came along under the Trump administration. There's more help under the Biden administration. But at this point, we need to get people back to work. So stimulating them to stay or incentivizing people to stay at home rather than go back into the workforce is not a great idea at this point. We need to get everybody back to work. And we can't pay unemployment insurance benefits that exceed what they could otherwise earn. That was crazy to begin with, and it continues to be crazy. So that has to end. But I do think the economy is coming back and that the problem with the stimulus is not that it happened, is that it's being left for our kids and grandkids, many of whom are going to be poor to, to have to pay because we deficit financed the stimulus. It should have been that rich people didn't lose their job, many of whom uh, did well by this pandemic, economically speaking. They should have been asked to pay more taxes to cover the benefits to people that lost their jobs. They were hurt by this. So that's the biggest problem with the stimulus is that the bills are all being left to the next generation. When you consider displaced workers, which you've referred to, do you see different recovery rates for the at-home versus on-site workers? And if so, how would you describe that? Yeah, I mean, the economy was becoming more and more 
bifurcated. Um, you got the people with tech skills and people with without them, and more automation, more robotics coming along. So lower skilled people were already under a fair amount of stress. There's lots of occupations that were being automated and will be automated. And then this thing hit on top of that. So we have to worry about where people are going to get jobs and whether these machines, smart machines broadly defined, are going to be permanently eliminating jobs, not just... So we've seen a lot of you know, obviously restaurants and service industry companies go down. Will will they get back to work? And they may recover there, but there's this broader underlying uh, trend of automation that we also have to worry about. And there's where fiscal policy should be taking from the winners and giving to the losers. But we have to make sure that the government's involvement in the economy and trying to help the people that are been hurt by new technology and try and get to a fair society that doesn't entail taxing people to death to the point where they have no incentive to work. So we have to look at marginal incentives to work, marginal tax rates. And we have lots of poor people in very high marginal tax brackets and lots of rich people in very high marginal tax brackets to the point where unless we have some real tax reform that rationalizes what we're doing, we're going to see lots of people continue not to be participating in the workforce. I mean, if you look at the, the bottom fifth of the distribution of income, that segment of the poor, about a quarter of these people are facing marginal tax rates above 70%. It's not in the income tax because they're not paying federal income tax, but if they earn another dollar, they can lose Obamacare subsidies, food stamps, welfare benefits, or Medicaid or Medicaid, or housing support, or the earned income tax credit. So all these things are forms of taxes that affect your incentive to work. So I'm not sure exactly and I got to your, your answer your question, but but um, maybe some, so maybe I still wandered away from the question a little bit too much on that one. Not at all, actually. You've touched upon a number of things. So you've talked about the change in how business is conducted, and I think that's something that a lot of people miss. Unemployment versus labor participation rates when you talk about funding someone not to work and the challenges. How do you feel about the relief checks? Have they been well-targeted or not so well-targeted? I don't think the thing was well-targeted, to tell you the truth. Take the payroll protection plan, which gave money to companies. All they had to say is that they were losing business. So, I mean, it certainly was the case for lots and lots of companies, but there were businesses that were whose revenues were pretty much what they were the year before who were given funds through that process. So I think it should have been that you got some help if your revenues in 2020 were less than they were in 2019, something of that na- nature rather than just kind of wholesale giving out money to any company. Same thing with unemployment insurance. Should we be paying people to be you know, more than on unemployment than they, can earn, than they were earning when they were working? I don't see the argument for that, especially if we're not asking current generations to, to foot the bill. So yeah, I don't think it was well-targeted as it could have been. It, certainly better than nothing. And certainly it's a good thing the government intervened to help people who were in desperate shape, many of whom were in desperate shape and really did need the help. Many companies who were really rescued because of PPP, these were good things. And the Fed's, you know, support of the economy was a good thing because we would have otherwise had a massive financial crisis as well. But now at this point, the question is when you're going to take your foot off the gas pedal and let the economy 
sink or swim on its own. We can't have the federal government treat the economy like it's, you know, a three-year-old infant. It has to get out on its own and succeed on its own. Larry, one of the things that's been discussed and they're pushing for in some of the reform is a minimum wage, a federal minimum wage. Two questions. Is now the time for a federal minimum wage? And if so, do you think an approach more like we do with the stratification of taxes would be better than just a flat $15? Because it's less money to live in Fort Smith, Arkansas than it is to live in Manhattan. So how would you address that? Well, I mean, the, the minimum wage could be adjusted for regional differences in cost of living. A kind of a mixed view about minimum wages, you know, if, if that was a great, terrific idea, you might make it $200 an hour, in which case all these low-wage workers would be fired the next day. So that's what economists are concerned about, whether employers will reduce their demand for, for labor, lay off people. And then the ones who are left earning a higher wage, well, maybe the, the ones who lost their job are their kids or, or brothers. So maybe on balance, they're going to help these people who lost their jobs. So it, to me, the policy feels in part like you're forcing the poor to help the poor. If we want to help the poor, why don't we have the rich help the poor? But let's do it in a way that the rich still have an incentive to work. And that requires tax reform, fundamental changes in how we're collecting taxes so people have incentives to work. Uh, but the other uh, thinking about minimum wage is that we have a lot of monopolization uh, retail sales. You know, for example, we have these big box stores, Amazon, so forth, who are very powerful. And we have labor unions who basically disappeared. So the minimum wage is like a way of changing what's a reasonable way to treat workers and giving workers some power collectively. And in that way, it's like a countervailing monopoly. So from that perspective, I see an argument for a minimum wage to try and kind of act like a national union, like the government is like is acting as if we had a national labor union. It's acting on behalf of all workers and trying to provide countervailing power. And, and uh, certainly $15 an hour is a very tough amount of money to live on, given what's going on with prices and so forth. And as far as I know, we haven't passed that minimum wage unless I have this wrong. But certainly companies have the idea now that this is, they have to pay people a living wage. And that's, I think, a good thing, getting that into the idea, into the minds of people like Jeff Bezos, that they can't just be take, 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 take from the economy, from workers. They have to live with lower profits. They have to live with lower CEO salaries. They have to provide some fairness. Uh, that's really important, I think. Well, Larry, we're going to take another quick break and talk more about the United States economic trajectory when we come back. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers is the only association of nonpartisan election reform leaders, organizations, and industry professionals dedicated to increasing electoral competition and voter choice. Learn more at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back. My guest today is Larry Kotlikoff, professor of economics at Boston University and a politically astute and opinionated observer of our nation's economic programs and positions. Let's talk about a few other issues, and you've referenced these lightly, but I'd like to get into them in a little more depth. Healthcare, for example, you've written a lot on the public option and how it needs to be reformed. Can you touch upon that? Yeah, we need to have one system of, health, of basic health care in the country. The federal government is involved in all the different programs, Medicare, Medicaid, 
Obamacare, employer-based healthcare is a huge subsidy, tax subsidy. So running this as a kind of like a, a balkanized system with different programs, let's have one program that makes sense and give everybody a basic policy, have the government figure out on a risk-adjusted basis how much taking care of that basic coverage for this person, for Joe, will cost. Give Joe a coupon that he can give to an insurance company to to buy into a plan that provides that basic coverage. And then we have competition because this would take into the coupon, would take into account the pre-existing conditions of Joe. And now we're going to have competition just like in the weed industry because the health insurance companies will compete for Joe because they'll know that if Joe is particularly sick, like he's diabetic, they're going to get a bigger voucher for him. That's the kind of system that's called Medicare Advantage. We already have this in part of the Medicare system. We have Medicare Advantage for all, Medicare Part C for all. We can have healthcare delivered to the entire country for about 12% of GDP uh, rather than spending 18%. Maybe there'll be supplemental policies that people can buy that go beyond the basics for, and we'll get up to maybe 14, 15% of GDP, but that's going to make a huge difference to our kids, not spending 18% of GDP stupidly, but 14, maybe percent, and giving them a future because the difference is a huge amount of taxes that they're going to have to pay if we don't get that under control. So that's how I would fix healthcare. There's so many things to fix in the country. Education, we need to have an improved educational system. Here, I would say, look, we know that we can have Zoom video presentations half the day in K through 12. Let's equalize education. Let's give everybody uniform electronic education provided by the very best teachers in the country to kids in the poorest neighborhoods or the richest neighborhoods. Let them all have the same remote learning for part of the day. And then the teacher can go around and help kids individually. And it becomes a class size of one rather than 35 to one. Let's think innovatively. Let's think about fixing the banking system so we don't have all these financial banks that are these banks that are leveraging like crazy borrowing money saying, trust me, I'll pay you back, investing at risk. And if their investments go under, the banks fail, government has to bail them out. That was 2008. Let's let them borrow on a, get money in on a equity basis and have a mutual fund banking system. So we'll never have another banking failure, banking crisis. So this uh, tax reform, I mentioned that briefly, that we need to have, I think we need to have consumption taxation across the board, different forms of it to get these marginal tax rates down. Welfare reform, I think we need to give people benefits in kind so it doesn't, so if you earn an extra dollar, you don't lose, your, lose food stamps. Let's just give out food in distribution centers so that people are not disincentivized from working. There's so many things that we can do to fix the country if we use a little bit of basic economics. You know, you bring up the taxation issue, and I'm struck by what was transpiring in the G7. They're talking about a minimum 15% global tax somewhat targeting tech. How do you feel about that approach? Well, I think there's this race to the bottom where different countries are cutting tax, their corporate income taxes, effective marginal tax rates to get people to come invest in their country. And that's, you know, Ireland's a perfect example of that. They lower their tax rate from around, I don't know, maybe it was 50%. Anyway, it went down to about 12.5%. This spurred the Irish miracle. So the country became very prosperous, one of the top countries in the EU, but it was like uh, beggaring my neighbor. They were taking investment away from other countries. So I think there, it does make sense if we can get countries to abide by that agreement to have a 15% minimum corporate income tax. 
and less chance that uh, an Apple or, or some other kind of company will go relocate in Ireland or some other place to avoid U.S. taxes or other countries' taxes. So, yeah, I think that makes sense. But I think what makes more sense is not taxing corporations whatsoever, but taxing consumption. If I own a corporation, if corporations aren't people, people like me, people like you, people with 401ks, rich people, poor people, we own the corporations through ownerships of the stock. So if the corporations do well, we get more income, capital gains, dividends, we get to consume more. So let's tax what we really care about, which is consumption. What's really concerning us about inequality is somebody drives around in an Audi and somebody else is driving around in a you know, some very inexpensive bicycle, okay? Because they can't even afford a basic car. So that's where the consumption is. Let's go, let's tax the purchase of the Audi. Let's tax consumption. I'm not talking about just luxury tax. I'm talking about taxing all consumption. And whether that consumption is done here or abroad, doesn't matter. Currently under the income tax, we tax income earned no matter where we earn it. We're across the border in the board, in the country. Here we should have a tax on consumption that's done globally. So if I spend half my life in Aruba living on a yacht, then we should be taxing the consumption I do. And there are ways to calculate that tax, that consumption tax and apply it. So for taxing consumption, we don't need to tax corporations. We don't need to have a minimum corporate income tax across different countries. Larry, very quickly before we wrap up, when I bring up issues about interest vulnerability or whether or not we have a functional capital market, a lot of times the response to me is, well, don't worry about it. We have modern monetary theory. We can print the money. What's your brief opinion of modern monetary theory? I think it's ancient monetary stupidity. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, we had 22 hyperinflations, certainly all generated by, quote, theorists who uh, thought that they uh, countries could just print money out the wazoo and pay for everything by printing money. But we saw that led to hyperinflations where expectations of, hyper, of inflation took off and turned money into a hot potato. Germany in the 20s, Hungary after World War II, Russia in 1998, Venezuela today, Egypt. I mean, all you have to do is look around at, the, the, at running these kinds of policies. And if it were such a great idea, I would say to a modern monetary theorist, and I have said this to them, well, look, great idea. Let's cut every single tax to zero. Actually, let's make the taxes negative. Let's make provide massive subsidies to people. Don't collect any taxes and just print money to pay for all that. And everything the government buys, let's print money. And let's see how that works out. Are you up for that? And immediately they'll say no, because they're not that stupid. They're stupid, but they're not that stupid. And so, you know, we have to be responsible. We know going back to Diocletian, in the, well, the, the Romans are in around two, year 200 AD uh, in the common era. They were running a massive hyperinflation by minting coins out the wazoo that were watered down, had no real silver in them. So we know this doesn't really work uh, to pay. You have to pay your bills. That's the basic lesson of economics. And it's a lesson that holds for countries as well as households. And we need to have responsible government to realize that lesson. Well said. Well, Larry, in the limited amount of time we have left, where can our listeners go to learn more about you, your writings, and pick up copies of your books? Yeah. Okay. So kotlikoff.net is my website. I have a new book coming out called Money Magic. It's coming out. I do write a lot about personal finance. 
It's coming out in January, but you can pre-order a, a copy of it. It's Money Ma- Magic by Me, but there, there are other books called Money Magic by Other People. The other thing is I have a personal financial planning software company. We have a great tool. It's called Maxify.com, M-A-X-I-F-I.com. It's going to maxify your personal financial life and figure out safe ways to raise your living standard and deal with your investments and figure out how long you should work and deal with social security, things like that. So um, I would say Kotlikoff.net, this, look for this book, Money Magic, coming out in January, and then Maxify.com, M-A-X-I-F-I.com. Well, Larry Kotlikoff, thanks for taking a deep dive into the economy with me. I always look forward to reading your work, and it's been a complete pleasure to have the opportunity to discuss the economy with you. I also appreciate everything you do to simplify complex issues for the general public, like your work on Social Security. You perform a great service in that regard. So, Larry, I wish you continued success in all of your endeavors. And thank you again for joining me on Deconstructed. Uh, TJ, thanks again for having me and happy to come on anytime. You take care, okay? You too. This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio.